This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite regular segments, our This Day in History, as always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Whether you're a diehard Harley-Davidson rider or you wouldn't be caught dead on a hog, there's no denying that few motorcycle companies have achieved the success that Harley-Davidson has. But who were the visionaries behind this iconic brand? Today we're going to tell you the story of one brother, William Davidson, who died on this day in history in 1937. A Harley-Davidson is more than a motorcycle. Like McDonald's, Coca-Cola, and Levi's, it has become one of the most popular American products in the world. It is a symbol of America's inventiveness, rugged individualism, and pioneering spirit. Ironically, what would become one of the world's largest and most widely recognized motorcycle manufacturers was born out of pure and simple laziness. Harley and the Davidson brothers embarked on a quest to take the work out of bicycling. Their dream was to build a motorized bicycle that would enable people to travel reliably and as fast as the technology of the time would allow. But the road to success was not exactly smooth. It was filled with innumerable obstacles, ruthless competitors, and extraordinary risks. Together, these young men, the son of blue-collar immigrants, gave everything they had to ensure the survival of the company they founded. But just how far would they go to reach the ultimate American dream? This is their story. Around the turn of the 19th century, a new invention was sweeping across America. The bicycle. This two-wheeled wonder enabled individuals to travel farther and faster than ever before, and millions of Americans spun off to explore the country with their pedal power. Here's former Harley-Davidson Motor Company historian Martin Rosenblum. Bicycling is something that uh, is hard to think of in the present relative to the way it was in the past because it was so immensely popular at the turn of the century. There were millions of bicycles. The bicycling craze attracted the attention of a number of young entrepreneurs, including the Wright brothers. Wilbur and Orville would give up cycling for their airborne adventures. But Harley and the Davidson brothers were interested in keeping their wheels on the ground. One day while doing a roadside repair on his bike, the high-spirited Arthur Davidson observes a cyclist hitching a ride on an automobile by holding onto the rear fender. This moment will be the initial spark that fuels a revolution in the world of transportation. Davidson pitches his idea to neighborhood friend and mechanical genius, Bill Harley, who has been spending his time developing a small combustion engine. Well, what do you think? I think it's an upside down bike. No, your foot engine on the bike. This is it, this is our venture, a motorized bicycle. I don't know, others are messing around with engines on bikes. So we do it better. 
Maybe, but the, the foot engine isn't even big enough to power a bicycle. But we just, uh... No, before you say we just do this or do that, build in an engine, any engine, it's a massive undertaking. You build railroad engines. I'm just a draftsman. This would take metallurgy, combustion science, machine tools, and money. None of which we have. Bill, Bill, I've known you since we could walk. You were born for this. You know it too. It's 1903 in Wisconsin, and William Harley and Arthur Davidson are determined to find a faster system for traveling on two wheels. The invention of the combustion engine has inspired them to believe they can motorize the bicycle, but it's proving to be a daunting challenge for these ambitious young men with a shared past. William Harley is born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and grows up a couple doors down the street from future partner Arthur Davidson. In the wake of the Civil War, America is rapidly industrializing. By the late 19th century, Milwaukee is an economic powerhouse and a leading producer of iron ore. By 1890, the city is home to 2,879 manufacturers. One of them, the Meiselbach Bicycle Factory, hires 15-year-old William Harley as a cycle fitter. Over the next several years, Harley gains experience as an engineer and draftsman. It isn't long before he's caught up in the city's spirit of innovation, and he starts rethinking the bicycles he's building. No one knows for sure, but some believe that the idea for a bicycle begins with the sketch by a pupil of Leonardo da Vinci in 1493. But it's not until 1817 that Baron Karl von Dreyas of Germany builds the first working bicycle. In 1867, Sylvester Roper, a Massachusetts inventor, tries to put a steam engine inside the frame to power the wheels. But the technology is unreliable and the machine quickly fails. 18 years later, in 1885, Gottlieb Daimler patents the Reitwagen. It's widely considered to be the world's first motorcycle, but Gottlieb abandons the project to focus on developing the automobile. William Harley, now 21, is fascinated with the idea of adding motorized power to the bicycle. His studies in mechanical engineering at the University of Wisconsin at Madison will be a tremendous asset in his pursuits. In 1901, Harley quits the bicycle business and teams up with his old friend, 20-year-old Arthur Davidson, to pursue the idea of a motor-driven bicycle. And when we come back, we'll learn what happens next as these two young lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, intersect. This is Our American Stories, the story of Harley and the Davidson Brothers.
This is our American Stories and our This Day in History segment. Harley meets Davidson in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. What happens next? The pair work tirelessly for the next two years. At first, their designs are pretty crude. Their first carburetor they made themselves reportedly out of a tomato can. They said their first uh, spark plugs were as big as doorknobs and cost $3 each. And by 1902 standards, that's a lot of money. They developed their first engine. And it works. For a little bit. What? What happened? These homebrew parts aren't cutting it. We need precision machining and new parts, Arthur. We can't just keep cannibalizing everything. The boys need help. Okay. Grab a pencil. They call on Arthur Davidson's older brother, the tough-as-nails railroad machinist, Walter. Grab a pencil. Write this down. Dear brother, I write to you of a great opportunity. You really think Walter will invest in such a small operation? He's family. Besides, he's a big-time rancher and a railroad machinist. And this is smart money. Remember Bill Harley from across the road? He and I have made an amazing machine. A motorized bicycle. The engine is strong and swift. She'll take you anywhere you're brave enough to point her. We could use some capital. $75 for marketing and such. We'll gladly repay you with interest. Initial estimates put sales in the hundreds. Don't be ridiculous, Arthur. Maybe you're right. Initial estimates put sales in the thousands. Walter is intrigued and pays Bill Harley and his brother Arthur a visit. You were going to take your brother's money for that? And pay me back how, huh? You've never worked a full week in your life. How many others have you floated this past? No one. It isn't like that. And what is it like? We made the engine. It works. It works? It did. Until uh, it didn't. The fruits are not very promising. But when Walter sees the beautifully detailed sketches and the blueprints plastered all over the walls, his attitude quickly changes. You made this, Harley? We both did. You both drew these. It's not bad, Harley. What about the final drive? Um, the main issue there is the chain that's breaking. Chain, huh? You could try a belt drive. Like on a tractor? <laughs> it ain't pretty, but it'll work. Let's try it. Good. This frame is too small. The three boys immediately get to work on their new idea. Press the inlet valve. Hold it, okay? Press it. It's pressed. Are you pressing it? Yeah! Oh! Ah. Ah. Keep pedaling, keep going! But Harley is torn between his academic pursuits. See? It works! And his invention. Where's he going? College. Going to college? Yeah, that's his plan. What's yours? Listen. Walter gets tunnel vision 
and wants in on the motorized bicycle. It took the three of us to get it to work. You can't just walk in here and be part of this. This is our venture. You need me. Get over it. After his first test drive through the plains of Wisconsin, Walter Davidson is euphoric. Arthur comes out on their front porch to get some feedback. You're back. <laughs> what? What is it? This machine. <laughs> it's... I, I can't explain. It's like... This is it. And our next version... Oh, I'm sorry, our? No, no, you must mean Bill and I. Because I, I don't see why we would... Forget about trams, cars, trains. This is like nothing else. I'm, I'm still shaking. I rode it until it ran dry. Twice. Walter wants more from Bill Harley's machine and is willing to pay for it. Can this go faster? For what? No, no, it'll, it'll be too loud, too dangerous. Nobody's going to want to buy that. People will want it, trust me. Can't make this one faster, but if we had money... Sure. Yeah, we definitely could. $175. That's all I got. We don't need all you got. If I'm going to put my money into this, it needs to be real. What's it needs to be real? Others are already doing this. So we gotta be different. Ours needs to be bigger, stronger, faster. And we built it tough. I want ours to go anywhere. Finally, in 1903, they're ready to test their new machine. But it fails to get up the Milwaukee Hills under its own power. Not even a two-horse engine. Okay, so we just use it for, for what? For pastors who want to take it on Sunday picnics? How Bill Harley and Arthur Davidson solve this problem will alter the future course of our country, the way we fight wars, and redefine American manufacturing along the way. We built a loop frame. It'll handle a little better. It does look like a motorcycle. Remember, we're selling to people who come from bicycles. Should we make it look like a horse? The result is called a loop frame motorcycle with a 440cc engine. Here's Vice President of the Harley-Davidson Museum, Bill Davidson. When you look at serial number one, the cradling of that engine follows the function of delivering that horsepower to the ground. The 1903 is truly a ground-up designed motorcycle. The three friends found the Harley-Davidson Motorcycle Company and begin producing bikes inside of a 10 by 15 foot wooden shed in the backyard of the Davidson family home. They were just a couple guys and they had a really tiny, tiny little building that said Harley-Davidson. In 1904, Harley produces just three motorcycles. A year later, they build seven. But it's while trying to sell their bikes that they hit on a second revolutionary idea that will change the structure of American business. 
Here again is Bill Davidson. They talked to a gentleman by the name of C.H. Lang. The dapper Lang approaches Arthur Davidson. C.H. Lang. Piano tuners. I own the largest manufacturer in North America. Well, if you're interested in purchasing a Davidson Harley, I suggest you act fast. Our initial factory run has sold out. Do you have a car? They're being printed. At your factory? Your coat is a hand-me-down, your shoes are covered in grease, and you have no car. I believe this company you speak of is largely fiction. Well, our bike is real. Well, how about we discuss how to get your machine built, en masse, and into dealerships across the country? In dealerships. Mr. Davidson, I see a great opportunity for both of us. Arthur rushes home to share the news with Walter and the rest of the Davidson family. I've got a check here for a thousand dollars. Whoa. From whom? A Chicago businessman who wants to open a dealership in Bacchus. Another shady associate? Business is full of shady associates, mother, but this one is for real. See, it's Lang. Bank says it's good. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh! Oh! Yes! <laughs> oh, big Bill, we're gonna need a foreman to uh, oversee things. Like I'm gonna work for my bonehead little brother. Maybe I'll think about it. Ah! The third Davidson brother, William, also a railroad mechanic, joins the team. And when we come back from three bicycles, motorcycles sold to seven, and then finally some backing and some capital. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of Harley Davidson. When we come back. Turn to our This Day in History. Now that capital has been infused into the Harley Davidson Company, we find out what happens next. They talked to a gentleman by the name of C.H. Lang, who opened our first Harley Davidson dealership in Chicago, Illinois. And you think about that. 03, they roll the first bike out. 04, they start a dealer network. By 1909, just five years after starting, Harley has 13 employees building 1,000 bikes a year, and they establish unique dealerships in New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Newark. At the time, few products have specialized stores operated by skilled salesmen. Harley, however, believes offering the public a dedicated staff will entice buyers raise sales, and build brand loyalty. 
the concept of creating dealership networks quickly spreads to the sale of automobiles and then to chain stores in other industries. But to keep growing, the company needs a better product. So Bill Harley develops a new, more reliable engine. The result is a design revolution. Whoa. Look at this. Oh. This design's gonna concentrate power. A lot more power. Good job, Bill. I just hope it works. It's gonna eat up the rest of Lang's investment. It'll work. Here again is Bill Davidson. Our engine at 45 degree V angle is truly the heartbeat of our motorcycles. It's called the V-Twin, introduced in 1909. It's a dependable motor that has two cylinders instead of one. The design is so elegant that the same basic form is still used today. The V-Twin is one of the most popular engines for motorcycles and Harley has always used a V-Twin. And like most of the prestigious companies operating today, scrutiny almost always follows success. So too was the case in the early days of the Harley-Davidson Motor Company, when a hostile reporter paid Arthur Davidson a visit before printing another motorcycle hit piece on what she dubbed the murder cycle. It's a pleasure to meet you, Miss. You might not want to shake my hand when you hear why I've come here today. Oh. I'm writing an article about the dangers of motorcycling, murder cycles, I call them, and wanted to give you the chance to go on record. Another article. Great. Yes, thank you. This is very kind of you. Pardon? Please. Murder cycles have captured the attention of young men across the country. There seems to be something about these deadly machines which excites the spirit. The freedom and the speed of these machines provokes a new kind of wildness. Thank you. I couldn't have phrased it better myself. This kind of press is hard to stimulate. You look like the cat who swallowed the canary. Nope, not at all. I understand being driven to a cause, and I respect somebody who stands for their beliefs. Please, Miss Beisel, write as many anti-motorcycle articles as you possibly can. Uh, uh, do me one favor, though. What's that, Mr. Davidson? Please don't ever ride one of our machines. Because if you do, you'll have too much fun. You'll become a huge enthusiast, and then there goes all my free press. Five years later, in 1917, the United States enters the First World War. The Indian and the Harley-Davidson, America's top two motorcycle companies, get drafted. Both companies eagerly arrive at their meeting with the Army officials. But what neither company knows is that this is not a done deal. Walter and Arthur Davidson and Indians President Randall James walk into the meeting together. We're using you both because we need you both. Indian and Harley Davidson are number one and two, and we expect your full commitment at this critical time. How many units are we talking about? Well, to begin with, the Army General Staff is contemplating 25,000 from Indian and 15,000 from Harley Davidson. 
but Arthur Davidson comes prepared. Uh, sir, our engineer has taken the liberty of drawing up a few uh, preliminary military applications from our existing machines. The army official scans Harley's drawings. These are really very good. Randall James is caught flat-footed and tries to regain leverage. Our entire engineering staff is waiting to work on this at a moment's notice. Waiting to see if you get the contract? <laughs> I'm waiting to hear your specifications, General. At this critical juncture, we have little time to waste on something you needn't require. Arthur quickly reacts. Along with our full commitment, Harley-Davidson is willing to offer an exclusive maintenance program to the U.S. military. In what capacity? The Harley-Davidson Quartermaster Training School. We'll send technicians to bases all around the country to teach military personnel how to fully maintain, overhaul, repair, and, if necessary, scavenge parts from one machine to another. Oh, and, uh, all free of charge. Free of charge? Yes, sir. At this critical juncture, we feel that it's our obligation. With the strain of combat on man and machine, Harley-Davidson finds it absolutely imperative that the American fighting man know how to repair his motorcycle in the field rather than waiting for maintenance crews like the British and the French and the German armies do. Sir, American men already know how to fix things. That's right. Why not let us give them that extra advantage? Arthur's quick thinking gives Harley-Davidson the edge over Indian motorcycles. Let's make it 20,000 each to Harley-Davidson and Indian. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. Initially, the bikes are only used by messengers, but the machines prove so effective that they're soon deployed on the front lines. Free quartermaster training school, couldn't this ruin us? No, this will not be our ruin. This is about customer loyalty. It's an addendum to the Harley-Davidson motorcycle clubs. Only now it includes the entire U.S. Army. After the war, we'll have an entire group of loyal Harley-Davidson enthusiasts, men who went to hell and back on a machine that they know inside and out, that they love, our machine. That means group rides, uh, social mixers, clubs. By the time the war ends in 1918, over 20,000 motorcycles see active duty, and they leave a generation of American GIs hooked on them. And over here are our selection of Excelsiors. I'm only interested in Harley-Davidson. I hear that a lot after their Army Quartermaster School program. Boys coming back only want Harleys, just like yourself. Returning vets are full of stories and gratitude because of their time spent on the Harley-Davidson motorcycle. One such vet made a visit to the Harley-Davidson factory in order to personally thank the owners of the company for saving his battalion. How may we help you? You already did. I was at Mirjagan. I want to shake the hands of the men who saved my life. Saved the whole battalion. If it weren't for that Holly Davidson, none of us would be alive. Yeah, we, we took a real beating getting back to our lines and German shells knocked me down. It looks like it was a mess. Frame bent, crankcase pouring oil, but she was still running. No. <laughs> Got me out of there so we could get a message back to HQ. So thank you. Are you kidding? Thank you. Absolutely. I forgot something. This is from all of us. It's our battalion flag. 
when fellas signed it. And when we come back, the rest of the Harley Davidson story. As always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. And we're hoping Larry Arn, or Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale, hears this one because he's an aficionado of the hog himself. I had to give it up when I had a kid. My wife said no, and I know a lot of men know that story. When we come back, the rest of the story. Harley Davidson, an American icon. This is Our American Stories and the final segment in this hour-long celebration of Harley-Davidson. And what a story this is. And now, let's take a listen to the last installment. Thank you. The exposure around the globe during the war also helps drive worldwide sales. By 1920, we were selling motorcycles in 68 different countries around the world. But while Harley and the Davidsons are reeling in their post-war success, the president of Indian Motorcycles drops a bomb on them. Arthur, Walter, and Bill open the letter. It's a class action lawsuit for infringement on a patented clutch design from Indian, Excelsior, a few others. What? This isn't anything. Everyone steals from each other. You didn't steal anything. I designed the damn thing. I you just, just didn't patent it? Apparently someone else did. Why are they suing us now over a 10-year-old patent? We still use that clutch. The same one? Yes. On how many machines? majority of them. This could ruin us. The feisty Walter Davidson marches into the office of Indian Motorcycle President Randall James. Walter, I thought I'd hear from you. You organized this? Got the others to join you? Oh, yes, it is unfortunate what with your Record sales and all. You couldn't stomach that we overtook you, so you cooked this up. Cooked up what? You're the ones who failed to protect themselves. It's always been a competition between us, but never backhanded. Never snaky like this. <laughs> We're businessmen, Walter. We're businessmen. Law is the law. A patent is a patent, no matter who originally designed whatever. I'm not a lawyer, Walter, but I'm almost certain that simple negligence does not shield a company from breaking the law. Oh, Walter, lawyers can be very expensive. Have a good trip back. Harley and the Davidsons assess the possible outcome of the class action lawsuit. If we fight and lose, it'll be $300,000. 300000 and then the settlement. 
which probably means bankruptcy. Uh, if we fight and win, it's still $300,000 to the lawyers. And then we sit and wait for the rest of the patent suits to tumble in. They'll pick us apart suit by suit. In a shocker, the always ready to fight Walter Davidson sees the writing on the wall. He shares the news with Bill Harley and his brother Arthur. I told the lawyers to settle. Pay him out and get it behind us. You did what? What does this mean for us? It means we have nothing, Bill. Why would you do that? Come on. Look at what I found. The optimistic Walter has a surprise for the boys. He's found the first Harley-Davidson motorcycle they ever produced. Is this right? It's a reminder of who they are mm -hmm. and what they are capable of. Number one off the line. No modifications. Let me try. You got the front? Yeah, hey, I got you. It's a very emotional moment for Harley and the Davidsons. Serial number one. But it's an optimistic one. We built this 20 years ago. It's still running. You're right, Walter. We start over from scratch. We don't need to be number one. It's about the machine. We're Harley Davidson. We'll keep building motorcycles even if we have to do it in a shed. Amen, brother. The boys start over, but it won't take long before they're back on top. Amen. Throughout the 1920s, Harley sets sales records, hitting a peak of 21,000 in 1929. But just a few months later, the Great Depression throws American business into a tailspin and Harley-Davidson is hit hard. Sales drop almost 80%, and we had no money. Here's Matt Levitich, president and CEO of the Harley-Davidson Motor Company. What do we do now? We're selling 300 motorcycles, not 20,000. If Harley-Davidson can't come up with something fast, the American motorcycle could go the way of the horse and carriage. Chips may never hit the highway, Returning vets may never have an outlet for their post-war angst. And a revolutionary business model might never shape today's most successful companies. So the four partners return to what has rescued them before. Innovation. But this time it's not engineering. It's a revolutionary business strategy called merchandising. Walter recognized the allure of the motorcycle look and launched a campaign to sell Harley-Davidson accessories and clothing. They sell leather jackets with the company masthead, a tactic virtually unheard of at the time. What you wear becomes a statement of who you are. The ingenious marketing move helps the company survive the down days of the 1920s and created a booming market for Harley-Davidson accessories that remains a major part of the company's success to this day. Harley's fight for survival 
finally comes to an end when the United States enter World War II in 1941. One of the reasons that Harley survived is because it sought military contracting. It was a strategic decision. We shut down all civilian production. We essentially went to wartime production, building 90,000 of our motorcycles. They somehow managed to get military contracts so that they didn't die during World War II like so many other motorcycle makers. The wartime manufacturing lifts sales. But in the middle of the war, William Harley dies of a heart attack on September 18, 1943. The human engine of Harley-Davidson is no longer there to propel the company through the post-war years. But the company endures, with all three of the Davidson brothers continuing to work for Harley-Davidson up until their deaths, with Arthur Davidson outliving all of them until he passed away in 1950 from an automobile accident. Over the next few decades, as a second generation of management will rise through the corporate ranks to replace the company's founding fathers, Harley-Davidson will experience a series of ups and downs, resulting from image and mechanical problems, as well as competition from the Japanese. But by being faithful to the tradition of quality and development established by its founding fathers, Harley-Davidson stands as the sole survivor of what was once a group of 300 U.S. motorcycle manufacturers. Today, motorcycles are accepted by every strata of society everywhere in the world. This isn't just an American thing, this is a human thing. That is the great equalizer across demographics, ages, cultures, crosses borders, generations, socioeconomic classes, ideologies, religion. On the front lines or at home, motorcycles symbolize modern culture. And Harley-Davidson has also made them stand for freedom and national pride. What America does better than anything else is sell culture. When you sell a Harley, you are selling America at its best, the American ideal, the optimistic America in a way that nobody else can do. The legacy of Harley-Davidson is one of resilience and ingenuity. William Harley and the Davidson brothers created a simple mode of transportation that transformed American industry, marketing, and popular culture around the world. And in the end, it's that sound. It's that great rumbling sound of the hog. And what a story about innovation, about grit, about determination and resilience. And let's face it, these guys had so many chances, so many opportunities to just call it quits. So many excuses, valid ones. The Great Depression, the lawsuit. They could have just folded shop, but they pressed on. And again, so many of our stories here on Our American Stories are about that character, that American character, grit and resiliency, and just wanting to do it on your own. And as always, all of our This Day in History segments are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu and watch all of their free and terrific online courses. On This Day in History, William Davidson dies in 1937. 
a key part of this great American iconic brand, Harley Davidson. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and if you've been anywhere near a beach or a campsite in the last few years, you've probably noticed the high-end Yeti brand coolers just about everywhere. If you don't already own one yourself, that is. They're built to last, they work remarkably well, and no, they're not sponsors. The people behind these Yeti coolers are a family of entrepreneurs out of Austin, Texas, and they have an incredible story. Here's Jesse. Roger Cedars is a businessman and inventor. He quit his job as a high school teacher in the mid-70s to go full-time with his company, Flexcoat, which is still in business today. So it's no surprise that he passed on an innovative attitude to his sons, Yeti co-founders Roy and Ryan Cedars. But even though the entrepreneurial spirit resonates loudly, it's Roger's lessons on fatherhood that stand out as Roy and Ryan raise families of their own. Not bad, Ryan, for a 28-gauge. When Ryan was still wearing diapers, we'd have a thunderstorm. He would wake up, go look out the window before daybreak. When he was able to get outside, he'd take a little red wagon and a little net and go out in the ditches and uh, scoop up crawfish out of the ditches. There's just something in his blood that makes him want to hunt. If he was born 500 years ago, in Texas, and you had to survive, he could still survive. You know, there's something about that. I know those Comanches might get me. (laughs) (laughs) Hunting and fishing was our passion. I think some people would think we're over the top, but you you have to have that passion first, and then you might stumble into something. We were into the outdoors, we were into the gear, and, and that's what eventually got us to Yeti. Boy had always said that ideas are like commodities, and, and they really are, unless you're hanging around someone like Roger or Roy who can bring them to life in front of you or take them to market. It was the, really the boat business that brought me to the cooler business. Cool. Everything about the boats I was putting together was high-end and durable and for fishing the Texas Gulf Coast the way we like to fish, except ordinary coolers. They weren't really matching the quality of the rest of the boat. And if you look back, everything led to the cooler business. Growing up out here in Driftwood, in the Texas Hill Country, we spent our entire days outside. We were running around with BB guns, and then eventually pellet guns, then eventually 22s. You know, our upbringing, our dad's small business, him wearing all the hats. We were always out getting our hands dirty, building stuff. I think that exposure, it was valuable. 
Growing up when we worked, we worked inside the business. Other kids were out there mowing lawns to make their summer money, and Ryan and I were building fishing rods. It was always flex kids. As long as we could remember. Yeah. That started out of his garage in Houston when we were probably, the, I think it was the same year I was born, and Ryan was three or four. If we can't find what we want, we make it. This is my business. This building here is 32 years old. Flexco, our number one product is we sell coatings to all the fishing rod companies. Almost every fishing rod made in the U.S., I would say 90% of them use our coating. We call this a lifestyle business. Everything we make, we make it for ourselves first, and then we try to sell it. I just started making gadgets and anything related to building fishing rods and it just turned into a business. The reason Ryan and I were so fired up about starting our own small business was to have that lifestyle that my dad had. What we saw with our dad was he had a lot of free time and could do what he wanted to do. The same way he is with those kids as how he was with us. When I got off the bus at three o'clock, he'd drop everything he was doing in the business and be with us. He was engaged, he was hands-on, he was there, he was present. He always had a van around here. I drove it to the Florida Keys 13 times. We didn't have any money. We were living out of the van, sleeping during the daytime in 90 degrees, and then fishing at night below the bridges. It was a lot of fun. And I was kind of encouraged to do that kind of stuff by my dad. I think it teaches you some valuable skills in life. I always say, thank goodness for golf. <laughs> Get those guys off the water. <laughs> I am a true believer in starting your own business and eventually you'll find a path. As my kids get older, that's one of my main goals is to try to figure out how to get that passion built up inside of them for doing your own thing. When I was becoming a dad, I thought naturally I was going to be a good dad like my dad just because that's what I was exposed to. He set the bar pretty high, almost too high, where it's hard to duplicate for our kids. The most precious resource we have is time, and that's time with the family. It's different times. We have all these other distractions. The easy path is not the right path. It's harder to pull those electronics away from the kids, make them look out the window and see where you're going. The formula is being engaged, being present, and supportive. It's a lot easier to say it than actually do it. I tell you, that's the ultimate in my mind. Just find something you love and just stick with it. Yeti began to take off in 2011 when sales hit 29 million as word spread among the hardcore hunting and fishing crowd. In 2014, that figure hit 147 million. For 2015, Yeti closed in on 450 million in sales. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. And what a great piece. And by the way, that's the voice of the American dream there. Practical, sturdy, risk-taker, self-reliant. And it ain't made up, folks. It happens all over the country. We bring you stories like these because, well, the rest of the media doesn't. This is Lee Habib, Yeti's story, a great family story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our On Leadership series, where we bring you conversations with leaders ranging from athletic coaches to entrepreneurs to teachers, military leaders, philanthropists, people from every walk of life. And you can find them all at ouramericannetwork.org and click on On Leadership in the topic section. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this latest edition. Steve Klinsky is the founder of the private equity firm New Mountain Capital. And he's also a father. Literally, I was driving home with my family from a vacation last summer. And one of my sons says, hey, Dad, I learned what you do in school. You guys buy companies and you fire everybody. And I said, wait a second, wait a second. Pull out the iPad, go to the New Mountain website, pull up the social dashboard, read it out loud. And this is what his son read on this so-called social dashboard. New Mountain itself has added or created over 26,000 jobs at the companies we've owned, why we've owned them, net of any job losses. The jobs pay way more than the national average because these are you know, high margin, high growth companies that we own. We've spent over $3.5 billion on R&D, software and capital expenditures. We've never had a bankruptcy. We've never missed an interest payment. I think we've created something like $18 billion for ourselves and our co-investors. And these co-investors are not whom you might think. Many of them are the retirement funds for folks like teachers and police officers and also college endowments, which provide scholarships for those who can't afford the tuition. So when Steve's New Mountain Capital is creating value, that's who they're creating it for. Let alone all those jobs that he mentioned and let alone their company's products themselves that give all of us stuff that we want, like their company of Vantors, high-quality ingredients that make up our pharmaceutical drugs that save our lives. Think this story is being told at your kid's school? Or have you heard it in the media? But all of us did hear them tell this story. Breaking news here. Stocks all around the world are tanking... The collapse of Lehman Brothers set off a wave of panic. It was the worst day on Wall Street since the crash of 1987. It was after Lehman Brothers uh, collapsed. You say that the banks, the big banks, are still at it, still gambling. Unfortunately, they are. If Wall Street does not end its greed, we will end it for them. Steve Klinsky heard this story too, and it moved him to do something. We started doing a social dashboard right after Lehman Brothers collapsed in 08 because there was so much anger in the country against business, against Wall Street, against private equity, everybody's trying to figure out who to blame, that I just wanted to be on record for ourselves, just what we ourselves do here at New Mountain. And just no one asked us to do this social dashboard I just asked my team to pull together what I think are very common sense metrics. A lot of people assume that everyone in my field is like Danny DeVito who comes in and some little miserable guy who, you know, sells the desk and melts down the phone for plastic or something. I mean, it's just not what, it's just, it's just the stereotype that, that we're always fighting against. The stereotype of having no soul, of making investment bets coldly and without any concern 
for other human beings. Well, in the single greatest bet of Steve's life, he poured out his soul, literally. I was driving home in a cab on a December night in New York. I had just seen a movie that you know made me think about my brother who had passed away. I was kind of in a in a bit of a melancholy mood, and I was coming home, and it was a rainy, misty night in December. And I look out the window, and there's a woman that I think is very beautiful walking up the street crying in the night in December in the mist. And I just told her, you know, I just kind of got a feeling. I asked the cab driver to stop, and I got out, and I ended up, you know, kind of been able to get catch up to her, tap her on the shoulder, and. Uh, we had a very brief conversation, but that led to me meeting my wife, and so it was a kind of a a, a lucky a, a, a lucky event. Or you have good intuition. I have good intuition, or it's just a, a good karmic nut. Um, she painted a little more colorfully, telling you to go away. You didn't include that in your answer. Well, like I, I, I didn't, we didn't get married the first day, so I was more. Uh, I was more. Uh, you know, I, it, it took a little time to convince her that uh, I was the right guy and all that. Ah, Steve's still holding back on me. His now bride recalled that night to the New York Times like this, quote, He kept saying, doesn't the city look cool tonight? And my first reaction was, get this guy away from me. I remember looking at the walk and don't walk signs flashing and thinking, I am going to lose him on one of these corners. The only thing I told him was my name and where I worked, and finally I just said, look, I don't want to talk to you. But she clearly changed her mind, and they are still married 22 years later. It's like one of these lucky things where you meet somebody and the odds are a million to one, it's going to be the right person, and then by the second date, it's 500,000 to one, and, by the, you know, and then you just start feeling better and better, so... It's, it's not something that's reproducible, but it worked out great, and, um, you know, and, and there it is. Of course, a finance guy talks about love like a finance guy with numbers and odds and all. Ridiculous. <laughs> and in the early years of their marriage, he and his bride would often spend their quality time together trying to help others make sure that their lives weren't left up to chance. I have two older brothers. My oldest brother's name was Gary and when I was in kindergarten he was in seventh grade and I would come home from school and he would give me school after school. He would have reading circles and workbooks and he was a big influence on me and my education. Uh, He passed away from illness when he was 29 when I was still in graduate school and when I got into my 30s and I had achieved, you know, started to have some success in my career, I wanted to be something in his memory, and I went out and started up after school centers in a neighborhood of New York called East New York, which at the time, this was during the crack wars in the 90s, it was the highest murder part of New York City and the most dangerous. They had more murders in this neighborhood than the state of Nebraska, so it was a really kind of under siege neighborhood, and I had the notion, let's go to the most disadvantaged traditional public school in that area. and create kind of a clubhouse in the school building after school to extend the day by 50% and do things in a fun way where it feels like thematic play. You know, you're studying the rainforest and you make, turn the room into the rainforest with art and you build a terrarium and you map the rainfall, those type of things. So we set that up in 1993 and that's still going today. 
And we're going to bring you more of Steve Klinsky's story after a few messages from our sponsors. And by the way, we love bringing you these stories from the private equity industry, like Steve's, that the rest of the media just isn't telling you. And not because they're in private equity, but because so many of them just have incredible stories and stories that you wouldn't expect. By the way, it's why we do Shark Tank. I mean, in the end, that's private equity, private capital, private money, helping other private people live their dreams. That's what it is. And how the media has turned this into the people with that money are somehow evil. And again, this is why we love Shark Tank. You know, remember, remember the beginning of that show. We learned that all of the panelists started with nothing. Barbara Corcoran, who we're going to do an hour on. Her life is so remarkable. I mean, she was a waitress. And she got her husband uh, or had a guy in his life, her life who just told her she wasn't going to amount to anything. She built up a pretty sizable real estate business with him. And then he walks out with some younger girl. And she's like, what am I going to do next? Starts her own company. Now, because of that success from the sale of her company, she's helping other entrepreneurs live their dreams. And that our young people don't know this story, that the American people don't know this story about capital, the human kind and the money kind. Well, it's tragic, and we're going to do something about it here on this show. By the way, we've told a couple of other great stories on leadership as it relates to private equity. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. One of our favorites was Madison Dearborn Partners founder John Canning's story of handling the horses at a Jewish summer camp, even though he never interacted with a horse in his life, and even though he wasn't Jewish. And today, by the way, John is one of the biggest supporters of Catholic schools in Chicago, even though he's an atheist. And this is what we love about these stories. And of course, our favorite, Robert Agostinelli's story, and he's the founder of the Roan Group, a big private equity firm. His mom worked three jobs to put him through school. His father served in Korea and took a bullet through his jaw. And Robert worked for free at his father's gas station and then went on with all of his wealth to make the National Memorial Day Parade a reality for our vets. These are the people who so many people in the media just don't like and who we love and we know the American people will love. This is Lee Habib. Steve Klinsky's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return to Alex's terrific interview with Steve Klinsky for our On Leadership series. And then in 1999, Steve left the company he used to work for, Forceman Little, to try to start his very own investment firm. And by coincidence, something else happened at this same time. The charter law passed in New York State saying that, that there could be charter schools. And I didn't really start New Mountain and have any money for it until January of 2000. So there was a year when I was thinking about New Mountain, but what I was really doing was working harder than I've ever worked in my life almost on, on charter schools. And I decided to get very involved in the charter movement as an extension of the concept that I had done in after school, that if it worked for three hours a day, wouldn't it be great to have the regular 
school, you know, be able to influence that. So I got very, very involved in that whole movement, ended up organizing the first charter school in the state. And even more charter schools after that. And charter schools are public schools that are empowered with more freedom to innovate than traditional public schools. And this first charter school in New York State history that Steve organized, well, he at first didn't know where he wanted to open one or with whom, but these, you know, minor details have a way of sorting themselves out. Originally, my idea was I wanted to stay out of New York City because, you know, if you fail in New York City, you have more enemies and more bad press coverage and, you know, more ability to be attacked, you know, in New York City than, it's, you know, you figure it'd be easier somewhere outside of the city. So I was going to kind of avoid New York City and find some nice place that really needed a school outside of New York. Uh, I was working with a young minister who became a good friend of mine named Marshall Mitchell, who was a theology student, and we were going around looking at every town in New York trying to figure out where to put the school. And it was frustrating because under the charter law, you get less money per student than any traditional public school, and you also get no building. You don't start with a school building the way a traditional school starts with. So you have to both get a building and a school on less money than they pay without this building. You know, it's really tough situation. And we had been looking at every sort of building, you know, burned out discotheques and auto dealer buildings, trying to find a building to put a school in. Marshall said, hey, I know a great guy with a great building and you should meet him, but it's in New York City in Harlem, which would put us right in the center of any political firestorm. And but I eventually said, well, look, let, let's let's go meet him. It turns out Marshall Mitchell's friend is Wyatt T. Walker. Wyatt T. Walker is one of the true heroes of the civil rights movement. He was Martin Luther King's closest friend and aide in the key years of the civil rights movement. So Wyatt Walker was King's chief of staff. He was the first head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was known as the field general for Project C, which was the Birmingham Civil Rights March, where Bull Connor was turning the dogs and the hoses on all the civil rights marchers. I mean, so Wyatt Walker, for anybody who knows the civil rights movement, is a real, is a true hero. And ever since the 60s, was running a church called the Canaan Baptist Church of Harlem on 116th Street. And he had fought drug dealers, and he had fought for housing and for jobs, and he's just a wonderful guy. Anyways, it turned out that that was the guy that Marshall Mitchell wanted me to meet. And what had happened is the church, through tithes, through people giving 20 cents or 50 cents or a dollar every Sunday for years, had gathered up enough money to build a new building at the back of the church. And it was a community center, but it would also work as a school building. And, you know, Dr. Walker had been fighting every social problem in his area, and he was also wanted to fight for better schools because he had seen that decade after decade, the schools had been failing, traditional schools had been failing in Harlem for his kids and for, you know, all the, the neighborhood. And so he, he was an early supporter of the charter movement. And the idea that I could come in with this application and with the funding and that we could team up and use his building for a charter school was something that he was absolutely enthusiastic about. And I decided he's such a great guy and, you know, the building would work that we would just take whatever political firestorm we would be in and just let's just do it. You know, and it's symbolically the center of a lot of things in, in civil rights. And I view charter school reform and education reform as civil rights. And so did he. 
I was curious how Steve's very first meeting with Wyatt T. Walker went. It reminded me of our story on the unlikely friendship of Stanley Drunkenmiller and Jeffrey Canada. Drunkenmiller, this wealthy white Republican investor who grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and Canada, this black Democratic education reformer who grew up in the Bronx and their hilarious first impressions of each other. So how was it? For these two guys. And I know Jeff Cannon is a wonderful guy as well. Dr. Walker has a reputation of not suffering fools lightly. So where Jeff Cannon is kind of nice to everybody, Dr. Walker is exceptionally respected, but also, you know, had been known to, uh, if he didn't like you, to make clear that he didn't like you. Easy. So, I mean, even among, you know, I had spent a lot of time in the black churches by that time going around because I was talking with different ministers and stuff. And I was kind of warned, look, this may not go well. I had not spent a lot of time uh, in Harlem, and I'm just, you know, but I just figure everybody's a person and treat everybody the same. So, I mean, I didn't know what to expect. We met in a in a restaurant at the base of a mosque, and Walker's been compared to Sean Connery. He's a very handsome, dignified guy, and uh, but we've become great friends in the years have gone on. Their charter school is called Cicely Walker, and there's a whole book about it that you could pick up. It's titled A Light Shines in Harlem. And a light sure did shine there. The students' scores are around double the scores of the traditional public schools that are in the very same neighborhood. Now, Steve mentioned talking with a whole bunch of Christian ministers in New York, and it made me curious. Is Steve of a particular religious faith? I am religious. I'm Jewish, and I'm very influenced by uh, a Jewish theologian who a lot of uh, who a lot of uh, uh, Christian divinity schools like as well. There's a guy named Martin Buber who was a philosopher last century, and he basically made the argument that the purpose of mankind that there's a, essentially a, a drop of divinity in every person and and every aspect of life, and the key is to try to bring that divinity out to hallow, H-A-L-L-O-W, every person and every aspect of life, and that that's the way people should live their life. So, and that everyone's path is different on how to do that. If you oversee one acre of land, you're taking care of that one acre. If you oversee a million acres of land, you're overseeing that million acres and, you know, whatever it is through art or business or everything's a potential path to do that. So I'm very influenced by, by Buber and that idea works my wife is Catholic. My kids are Catholic. I'm, I'm a Catholic church with them every week because I want to be with my family and I view it as the same message from whatever direction it comes. It's that same message of trying to just do decent things and bring that divinity out into the day-to-day world. So, And I, and I know Walker believes that. And it's interesting, King quoted Buber in the uh, letter from Birmingham Jail, uh, which Walker actually helped King put together that letter. And by the way, Martin Buber's I and Now may be as important a book anyone could ever read. It's beautiful. And that's why you hear someone from private equity who's married to a Catholic say, I want to bring out the divinity in every walk of life. Again, you're not used to hearing, quote, money men talk like this, but that's them too. And there are good guys who are rich, and there were bad guys who were poor, and it's just all around. And again, we want to bring out the best in every walk of life here on this show. And you hear it from every walk of life and from every walk of life in this show. And we think beauty is everywhere and that God is everywhere. And for those who don't believe in God, that's fine too. 
We're not excluding anyone here on Our American Stories. And when we come back, the rest of the story, Steve Klinsky, are on Leadership Series. And again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to capture all that we do on leadership, music, sports, history. More on Steve Klinsky's life after these messages. This is Our American Stories in our final segment, Alex's interview with Steve Klinsky, our On Leadership series continues. In the spirit of his favorite theologian, Martin Buber, Steve thought that there was more divinity that he could hollow out into the world in his so-called free time while he still got his full-time gig at New Mountain. I was at dinner with some friends back in 2012, and someone said, why is college so expensive, you know? And I tried to explain to them that it's a very, very odd situation, because what had just happened in 2012 was that there had been online courses for full pay for many years. I mean, there's been 20 years of people paying full tuition for online education, and about 5 million students a year take online courses. But back in 2012, some of the best schools like Stanford had started to give away online courses for free, and they were getting lots of students, but you couldn't get credit for it. So you had this odd system of expensive courses from maybe unknown schools at a lot of cost or great courses from great professors at no cost, but you couldn't get credit. You know, so you needed to figure out a way to get free courses for credit. And I tried to explain that to people, and then and no one was really working on it. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm entrepreneurial. I've started, a lot, you know, New Mountain and companies and lots of, you know, and charter schools. I'll, let me start thinking about it. Those free courses from places like Stanford and Harvard that Steve mentioned are called MOOCs, and they don't give out credit for them out of a belief that it would diminish their brand. If everyone was able to get credit from Harvard then Harvard wouldn't be seen as an elite brand. It wouldn't be Harvard. So how do you get great instruction for free plus credit? It sounds like an equation that doesn't work. But Steve had an idea, and it came out of his discovery of this little-known thing called the CLEP test, and I had never heard of it. CLEP stands for College Level Examination Program. And like advanced placement or AP exams, passing them can get you credit for college. But unlike AP exams, which you can only take if your high school offers AP courses, anyone can take the CLEP exams and at any time of their life. And thousands of colleges already accept credits from CLEP exams. But... There's not much in the way of CLEP prep courses out there. 
So Steve saw an opportunity, a way to leverage an existing yet underutilized asset. He thought to himself, what if I personally paid teachers to create online club courses so that everyone can take them and I'll offer enough courses that you can get the entirety of freshman year pretty much for free. The only cost is $85 for each CLEP exam. That's less than $1,000 for a full year's worth of credits. How does that sound, parents and students, compared to your 15000 $30,000, and 60000 tuitions out there? And by the way, you can actually get it completely for free right now. Steve is paying for the first 10,000 exam fees and is hoping more donors join him in these sponsorships. Given what I've said, you probably already found their website by now, but if you haven't, it's modernstates.org. Steve's hoping that it'll save students and their families money and also enable folks who couldn't afford college to now be able to. One-fourth of the cost one-fourth of the cost can now be gone for you, vanished into thin air. But I got to admit, when I first heard about what Steve was doing, there was one part of this whole thing that I was pretty skeptical about. Talk about how the education industries responded to this. I can't seem to think that they like it in terms of, um, and I know you've said otherwise from what I've, what I've read, but um, you know, I'm if you just think about it, don't they want people butts in their seats paying for tuition? We have gotten wonderful support, not opposition at all, from the major every major system we've talked to. So, for example, the first system we talked to is the State University of New York, which is, I think, the largest public university system in the country, you know, maybe that or California. I think it has 480,000 students or something like that. And they were extremely supportive right off the bat because, yes, they want students in seats, but they also... And, and, and we're an on-ramp for students to get into their seats. And they're under all sorts of social pressure to make college more affordable. So they've been great advocates of the program that this is one good way to do it. And so they've been very supportive. Texas State has been supportive. The public schools and colleges in Tennessee and Ohio. I don't think there's anybody we've spoken to who hasn't been supportive. Which is awesome to hear. And even more awesome is what this thing called the Internet combined with someone like Steve's generosity, can now allow. Look, if you like Mozart, you don't have to go to the Viennese Opera House, you know, and buy a seat at the Viennese Opera House in Vienna, and you don't have to go to your local orchestra and have them play Mozart for you to hear from your local band. You can listen to the Berlin Philharmonic play Mozart on Sirius Radio or Spotify or just over the air, whatever. There's lots of ways to hear great Mozart for free, right? That's just the way technology has evolved. The same idea can work for college courses where what we've done is we've gone to the very best professors we could find and had them teach a course for us, which is now online and available. Once we've paid to do the course, it's like a movie's been done or a YouTube video's on YouTube. Anyone can watch it now. It doesn't cost us any more to have a million people watch it versus one person watch it. We no longer have to settle for a mediocre or subpar teacher or school. If that's what happens to be in our physical area, we can have the best and we deserve the best. One of the reasons I felt 
kind of compelled to do the ideas, I do think it has a chance to help a lot of people. And I think it could be just a very, very big payoff for any charity that I give. So, you know, I've had good success in my career. I was actually, I was able to put this whole thing together for the single digit millions and it could help many, many, many people. So if it helps a million people save a thousand dollars, of course, that would be a billion of value and it could help way more than a million people. According to my back of the napkin math, if every single potential college freshman did this, the American people could save $100 billion in costs. Now think about that for a moment. For a charitable gift of less than $10 million, you could save upwards of $100 billion 10,000 times Steve's investment. And say if it's only the 1 billion savings number that Steve mentioned, this would still be an insane return, a 100 times return, and a return, not for Steve personally, not for his bank account, for our bank accounts. Again, I'm not in government. I didn't have to wait and convince people to spend $60 billion on community colleges or any other sort of taxpayer subsidy. It's just nice where you can do things as a private citizen and, and not need help from anybody. The quintessential American spirit. Go West, young man. And modern states isn't just some theoretical pie-in-the-sky thing. It's already helping out real people. We actually are calling up the students as they pass and, and getting the story. So the first student who ever took a modern states course and then passed the CLEP exam so he could get college credit is a 17-year-old homeschooler out in Oregon. So I called him up to congratulate him because he was the first one. And he took a chemistry course from a professor from Columbia for free and now has college credit at 2,900 major universities. I said, do you plan to go to college? He says, no, I want to be an electrician. And so he just was, you know, and, but he's now taken, I think, two more of our courses and passed two more college credit exams. So he's a great story. And the rest of the people are talked to by my team. Talked to another woman who's a working mom, has a one-year-old baby, had to drop out of school to work and take care of her baby. And she stays up late at night and is taking, getting these college credits and courses done, you know, I think at one in the morning, because you can take these courses anytime and at your own convenience and play them back as much as you want. There was another guy we spoke to recently who's 26, was almost done with college, ran out of money, had to drop out, was one credit short of getting his degree, came to modern states, got the course done. You know, we, we paid for the CLEP exam and now he has his college degree. So there's just some great, you know, it, it's for all type of people. There are 50 year olds taking it. We just talked to a 13 year old. There's some prodigy 13 year old in Arizona who uh, is taking college courses at age 13, and, uh, and so it's for everybody. But why is Steve doing all of this when he doesn't have to? Well, look, I, I believe everybody wants a meaningful life, and it, it goes back to any way you want to think about you know, humans and the purpose of being a, a human. It has nothing to do with being a Wall Street guy trying to or anything like that. It's just, I think everyone wants to, is looking for their own path to have a meaningful life. I try to have a meaningful life in all sorts of ways. I think obviously my family is very meaningful to me. My, my work life, I think is proper and meaningful. And this was an idea that I thought was eminently achievable. That could also be a, a good thing to have done and, 
in my life. And, you know, Dr. Walker's doing meaningful things in his life. The school teacher teaching the kindergartner and really giving that kindergartner personal attention is doing, having a meaningful life. Someone who gets up in the morning and takes care of their kid is having a meaningful life. This is just one thing that, you know, that I could do as, as, as that part of it for me. And great job, as always, on those, Alex. Our On Leadership series, Steve Klinsky, the founder of the private equity firm New Mountain Capital, which has created 26,000 new net jobs, founder of the first charter school in New York State history, and the founder of Freshman Year for Free. You can learn more about this incredible venture at modernstates.org. Steve Klinsky's story here on Our American Stories.